Well, um, as with any book of the Bible, when you start, there's always these preliminary things that you need to get through, and we'll certainly do that today. But some of you may say, why First Timothy? Uh, why, why in the world would we want to study First Timothy? Well, the obvious reason is, is it's in the Bible. That's the first reason we'd want to study it. But as I read First Timothy and kept reading First Timothy, I couldn't help but be drawn over and over to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And here Paul gives his reason for writing First Timothy. I was writing to Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, here's the reason, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Household of God is talking about the church. Gathered, not just gathered, but the life of the church. I'm writing, Timothy, I'm writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And listen, when we get to this chapter here, I warn you, I could probably preach on verse 15 for several Sundays. Because of what it says, which is the church of the living God. Wow. You are the people of the living God. I need to move on, I'll be preaching verse 15 here. Uh which is the church of the living God, and notice what it says about us, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You don't think that you, the church, are important. You need to read 1 Timothy 3.15 and see how important the church is to the mission of God. And then you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 6 and verse 20, Paul will say, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, you need to guard this. It's been entrusted to you. You're the leader of the church. The church is supposed to instruct the people to, to guard the gospel. Timothy, you've got to guard it. You've got to guard the gospel. Entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And Paul is writing to Timothy to pour out the importance of the church as it relates to the gospel and how we as gospel people should be about guarding the gospel and not allowing that gospel to be perverted. Paul tells Timothy that the task of the church is to, number one, understand the gospel, to to study it and to understand it, but then to proclaim it. And in all the things that we do as a church, we should guard the gospel. Everything we do should have a gospel focus. It should be uh, bent toward the gospel and guarding the gospel. And So Paul warns Timothy here, uh, it won't be hard to figure out, chapter 1 about false teachers. and It's a warning that we in our day and time, we have to heed it. You're thinking, well, you know, I've heard this all my life. I've been coming to church and preachers preach the Bible, and it seems like every letter of the New Testament is talking about false teachers. Why you why you think that? Because there were false teachers. That's why, and they're still here today. They've not gone away. They just package it differently in our day and time. It's a warning that we need to heed. There will always be the need to guard the gospel. It will never go away. If the church is to remain healthy and continue its mission, then we can never let up when it comes to guarding the gospel. Notice what I said. If we're going to remain healthy and continue on this mission, we've got to guard the gospel. Uh, As you can see in verse 1, I'm just going to do some introductory matters of verse 1 and 2, and then I've outlined 3 through 11. As you can see in verse 1, Paul's the author of this letter. 
And in verse 2, Paul is writing to a person. He's not writing to a church, but to a man named Timothy, who was, if you will, in our, our terminology today, he was, the, he was the lead pastor at the church of Ephesus. And yes, it's the same church that we have a letter in the New Testament written to the Ephesians. It's the same church. Timothy is their lead pastor. First Timothy is one of three letters commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles. And the other two being, anybody want to guess? Second Timothy and then Titus. They're all three together. They're called pastoral epistles because they have so much to say about the responsibilities of pastors in leading and ministering to God's people. And as we read these first few verses, we see uh, verse 1, that 1 Timothy was written again by the Apostle Paul. And in verse 2, Paul wrote, it says there, to his, what? True son in the faith. Meaning that Timothy was Paul's disciple. Don't the, These words are important. All words are important. And Tim, Paul is writing to his true son in the faith, meaning that Timothy was a disciple. He was a friend. He was a co-worker. He was Paul's spiritual son, if you will. Which tells you what? Paul was a disciple maker. He took Timothy under his wing and he taught him the gospel. He taught him the things of God. He, he, he spent his life shaping and discipling this young man. He refers to him to a true son of faith. Timothy was obviously younger, probably in his 30s. And if you read through the New Testament in different places, particularly 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, and Philippians, you'll see that Timothy, for about 15 years, was Paul's kind of right-hand man in, in, in the ministry. And so what does that mean that Paul did to Timothy? He poured into Timothy, not just because Timothy was going to become a pastor, but because that's what the Bible calls us to do, to pour our lives into someone, to teach them what it means to know and follow Jesus. And in verse 3, we see that Paul had placed Timothy in Ephesus to carry out a difficult task of dealing with false teachers and to lead the church to be faithful and to live godly. And Timothy was... uh, Here's what you need to understand. Timothy was not ministering in a city founded on Christian values. No. Ephesus had its fill of sin and rebellion, much like any town in America today. And the church at Ephesus was dealing with false teachers that were diverting people from the truth of God's Word. They were leading them away. And some of you would be thinking, uh, I know the entire Bible is important. But if 1 Timothy is a pastoral letter, then it must be for pastors and I don't have to apply it to my life. Oh no. That would be a a bad mistake to have that thought. Anyone who professes to be a follower of Christ and who is a member of a local church, and by the way, those two should always go together. Anyone who is a church member needs to know what God has said about how the church is to function. And remember this letter was written so that we would know what? How to conduct ourselves as followers of Christ in the church. That one verse sort of catch your attention. Oh, this letter's written and it will teach me how to function. It'll teach us as a church how to function as the people of God. So, the greeting, verses 1 and 2. Just a little bit and again we'll we'll move on. Paul says, and these are important. I don't want to not outline them because I don't think they are, but I just want to point out a few things. He says Paul was an apostle. 
First Timothy is written by Paul, an apostle. Apostle means one commissioned by God, one given authority by God. The words given to us in First Timothy are given to us by a special representative, and not just any representative, but a representative of the Creator, the King of the universe. That's who commissioned Paul. An apostle of Jesus Christ means that First Timothy is authoritative. It's God's word. And how so? Paul, notice what it says, was, was uh, Paul's apostleship was given by what? A command of God and of Christ Jesus. That word command is the same word we'll see Paul use toward Timothy down there. And I think about verse 4 when he uses the word charge. That's what that means. He's, he's commanding. So Paul is writing from God and there's a command that's been given to him to, to write this. It comes from God who? Notice what it says. Our Savior. Paul is making Timothy and all of us aware that the God he serves is the saving God of the Bible. Again, you know how I am. Words are important. These are not filler words. God is making a point through His Holy Spirit to Paul that this command comes from God, our Savior. And when I see that, here's what I think. You and I need to proclaim clearly that people are lost and they need a Savior. If God is the Savior, that means what? People need a Savior. Not just that they need a little improvement or help. The gospel message is not if your life lacks fulfillment, if you're having a few problems, just try Jesus and see how that works for you. The gospel message is apart from Christ, you're lost, perishing, you're under God's judgment, you can't save yourself. God does not save any who are worthy because none are worthy. But in His grace, God does save unworthy sinners who take refuge in Christ and His shed blood on the cross. So my call to you today would be trust God. Trust in His plan to redeem you. Paul was not only sent by God our Savior, but verse 1, Jesus Christ. Notice what he says about Jesus. He is what? Our hope. The letter of 1 Timothy is going to deal with a lot of difficult issues, but Paul reminds Timothy of the hope the church has in the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what the word hope is pointing us to, the death of Jesus for sinners and His resurrection. Jesus Christ, our hope. What a great phrase. Our hope is not in a religion. Our hope is not in human beings. Our hope is not in a better world. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. God our Savior and Jesus our hope. And so in verse 2, Paul addresses Timothy again as this true child in the faith. He's true. What kind of child does Paul refer to Timothy as a true child? The word true points to the genuineness of Timothy's salvation, which was confirmed by what? <coughs> Many years of faithfulness to the Lord. And here's what I want to say. Listen to me carefully. Faithfulness is always a sign of true faith. Faithfulness is always a sign of true faith. It takes longer than a few minutes or even a few months to determine if a person's profession of faith in Christ is genuine. Look at verse 2 again. Paul gives instructions to Timothy in the, in the context of the gospel. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Notice what Paul says here. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Paul's greetings can simply become words that we easily pass over. You know why we easily pass over them? Because if you read Paul's letters, what does Paul usually say in the beginning? Grace, mercy, and peace. Timothy and all of God's people, the church, Paul says, you're recipients of grace, which is what? God's unmerited favor. All are recipients of God's mercy, God's compassion and kindness. All are recipients of God's peace, which is the end of all hostility between us and God. What a blessing. Conducting ourselves rightly in God's house is made possible by those three things. God's grace, God's mercy, and God's peace. Now, verses 3 through 11. And here's your main idea. (coughs) Christian leaders are responsible to lead God's people to guard the gospel. Christian leaders, biblically, pastors, elders, bishops, overseers, whatever word you want to pull from the the New Testament, they all refer to the same thing. Christian leaders are responsible to lead God's people to guard the gospel. Verses 3 and 4. We've outlined it this way. Checking false teaching is a regular part of our ministry. And you're saying, okay, you're talking about the pastor. Yes, but I'm talking about you. I'm supposed to be teaching you to do the same thing. Five years. Here's what I want you to understand. Five years prior to Paul writing this letter to Timothy, Paul predicted in the book of Ephesians, or excuse me, the book of Acts, when he's talking to the leaders at the church at Ephesus, he's talking to them. Paul is getting ready to leave them, and he's telling them that fierce wolves will enter the church. Was Paul right? They're here. They're here. And notice in verse 3, he says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. This church was dealing with a serious problem of what? False teachers. Paul predicted. He said it's going to come. And it's here. And because of that, Paul pleads with Timothy, stay. Don't miss this. He pleads with Timothy to stay at the church and stop this spread of these false teachers. The urging and the pleading may indicate that Timothy was considering leaving. You can imagine how hard that was. He's the lead pastor and there's other leaders in the church and they're teaching false doctrine. You can imagine the pressure that's on Timothy. And Timothy may be thinking, I've had enough of this. I'm out of here. And Paul says, oh no, I'm urging you, stay. And some think that because Timothy was young, he was intimidated and he felt inadequate to, to handle all this. And these false teachers, as I said, were leaders in the church and they caused that caused Timothy even more trouble. Notice in verse 3 that, Paul tells Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. As I said, that word charge means command. Now who's Timothy talking to here? Timothy's the lead pastor, but there are other pastors, other leaders within that church, and he's supposed to tell them, I'm commanding you. This is a charge from God. In other words, that we're demanding obedience here. This gives us the idea that, that false teaching is not to be taken lightly. Paul talks to Titus in chapter 1, verse 11. And listen listen to what Paul tells Titus to tell the false teachers. He says, the mouths of the false teachers must be silenced. In other words, they need to shut up teaching that false uh, gospel. And Titus, you got the job of doing that. And by the way, if you read First and Second Timothy and Titus, Timothy was kind of timid. Titus, uh-uh. Titus is one of them kind. When he opened his mouth, everybody ducked. 
How'd you like to have that pastor? Titus didn't, he didn't put up with anything. He just said, here it is, you need to shut up, and this is what God says. To charge certain persons, it implies that the false teachers were few in number. Even though they are not named, the people of the church knew who they were. Certain persons, they knew. And based on what I said Paul told them in the book of Acts chapter 20, he says, from among you, excuse me, from among your own selves. Listen to what Paul says. From among your own selves will rise up men speaking twisted things. What's he telling the church? There are people among you who are going to rise up and they're going to teach false doctrine. And they're going to draw away the disciples after them. You don't think false teaching is serious? People can begin to teach things. And if people aren't grounded, they will what? They'll. Well, it's taught in the church. They're Christians. It has to be right. We go to Lifeway and there's that Jesus Calling book on the shelf. It's got to be... By me telling you that devotional, you need to be careful. And notice in verse 7, Paul calls them teachers of the law, indicating that they were... They were uh, or pastors, or, or, or leaders within the church. They had, a, they had a teaching position. And Timothy, notice he was to command these false teachers, these, these church leaders, not to teach any different doctrine. Some of you have a translation that says strange doctrine. These teachers were promoting different doctrine, doctrine other than what had been taught by the apostles. In other words, what was being taught by the apostles in the time of the New Testament? What you have laying in your lap, the New Testament right now, that's what he's talking about. Anything different from that is strange. It's different doctrine, which tells you what? When you hear teaching, you need to what? Open your Bible and make sure that's what's going on in the Bible. Verse 4 describes the error of these teachers. They devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, we can't be for certain as to what exactly Paul meant by myths and genealogies, but some people think most likely the false teachers were doing this. They were taking the Bible, the Old Testament, which is all they had at this point in time, and they were taking the stories of the Old Testament and the genealogies of the Old Testament, and they were trying to find hidden meanings beneath the plain meaning of the text. That's what they were, think they were trying to do. You've read the Old Testament. You get to certain parts and there's all these genealogies, right? So-and-so begot this. So-and-so begot that. And you're kind of like, I'm going to skip all this and go down to the end and start again, right? You, you don't read those. They were going beyond the basic teaching of the Bible. And they were trying to add things that they thought indicated a greater spirituality, a greater intellect, a deeper insight to the Bible. You remember the devotion I mentioned to you earlier? If you use it, come talk to me. If you read that carefully, that particular author of that devotional claims that she gets a revelation from God and writes those devotionals. No, she don't. She just needs to read the Bible and write what it says. She doesn't get a revelation from God. Notice there, um, the effects of such teaching were, verse 4, speculations. And what do speculations cause? When you hear the word speculate, what does that mean for you? Doubt, right? Speculations promote doubt. Notice it says, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Some of you have translations that say, godly edification, which is in faith. 
That word stewardship can be rendered work or plan. Work or plan. Plan referring to what? God's revealed plan of salvation, which must be responded to by faith. The false teacher's problem was that they, they got their focus, listen, they got their focus off the Bible, they got their focus off Jesus, and when that happens, the gospel gets what? Distorted. To believe wrongly about the gospel. And by that, I mean that man is saved by faith alone, in Jesus alone, and not according to works. To believe wrongly about the gospel is to be entirely lost. Listen to me. If you have a different view of what it means to be saved and what the Bible says, you are lost. Any teaching that leads away from the true gospel leads people away to eternal damnation. We need to guard the gospel and we need to be careful. Verse 5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and the good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul is telling us here that this charge, his command to guard the truth, to guard the gospel, his aim of the ministry of truth is to produce a heart of what? Love. What does that tell you? If you teach anything other than the gospel, it's a false love. Paul tells you here that in the local congregation, the ministry of the truth aims for this goal. In you is love. The ministry of truth is not designed simply to get you to sign a card or pray a prayer. The ministry of truth in the local congregation is not simply to get your name on the church roll. The ministry of truth in the local congregation is not simply to supply you with biblical facts. The ministry of truth is not simply designed to get you to believe certain things, although you should believe and hold to certain things. The ministry of the truth is more than that. It's to produce love in you. This is the exact opposite of these false teachers. False teachers want two things. They want you to follow them and agree with them. False teachers don't really care about your life. They're not interested in transforming grace. They're worried about you believing what I say and following me. Now listen, if I stand up here and preach the Bible, if I preach the Bible, I want you to listen and follow that. But I don't want you following me. Who do I want you to follow? Jesus. Paul says the aim of biblical preaching, the goal of preaching truth, is to see people transformed and living a life of love. That's the goal. Notice the word from in verse 5. Love issues what? Three things. From a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The goal of biblical preaching, the goal of uh, biblical truth is to see people transformed. As I said, living a life of love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And when we refer to the heart, what are we talking about? We're talking about the inner, the, the real person, the very center of that person. Because we're sinners, we need a pure heart before we can love. Right? This is yes. Before we can love biblically... We've got to be transformed. We've got to have a pure heart. You can't love unless God, by the grace of His Spirit, has given a new heart and a new spirit. You can't love the way the Bible calls us to. Then it says a good conscience. That's the awareness of right and wrong according to God's Word. It's the self-awareness of where you are, right or wrong, in your relationship to God's standards. You're not making your own rules as you go. Then it says a sincere faith. 
What kind of faith? Sincere. It's not a mere profession of faith. Instead, it's a wholehearted embrace of the promises of God found in the Word of God. So as a way of application here, what are we aiming for here at Red Road? What are we aiming for? As your pastor and with Richard as the youth minister, our aim, our goal is to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. So that you would know... Not so you would know more about the Bible than anybody else in Franklin County. That's not why we do that. And the goal of that is that we want the truth of God's Word to be so formed in your heart that your lives are transformed so that our community would say, those people know Jesus and they live like Jesus and they love Jesus. That's why we teach you the Bible. So those things would be evident in your life. Our goal is that you are fully embracing the truth of God and fully living a life characterized by the love of God. Our goal is to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus, because that is what Jesus told the church to do. And we do that not so we can brag on us, but so we can do what? Give glory to God. Verse 6. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions. Certain persons, they swerve. That means to miss the mark. They wander. Wander means to to get off course. What is it concerning that these false teachers miss the mark? These things. That's what he says. These things in which they are missing the mark are what we saw in verse 5. What were they straying from? Love. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. They were leading the people away from those things. These false teachers missed the mark biblically. And notice, <coughs> excuse me, verse 6, the result of their teaching, vain discussion. <coughs> what does it mean, vain discussion? Worthless. Worthless conversations. Notice the difference. Fruit, fruitfulness, verse 5. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verse 4. Fruitless. They speculate. They talk about things that they don't really understand. And the bottom line is that that doesn't build up, that doesn't edify God's people. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You can't edify the people of God unless you're teaching the people of God the Word of God. You're not going to build them up unless you do that. Verses 7 through 11. The Gospel is the message of all teaching. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying, man, that's not good to have on your resume. Or what if they call Paul as a character reference? Paul says, they don't even understand what they're talking about. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Notice it says their desires to be teachers of the law. Paul says these men want to be thought of as experts on the law. But what are they? They're without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In other words, they don't, they don't understand the law. They don't understand God's Word. And Paul says they show that in both their life and their teaching. Notice it says, and yet they make confident assertions. They speak as if what they say is absolute truth. 
In verse 7 he says, all you have to do, it's this simple. All you have to do is listen to them to know that they don't know very much about the Word of God. All you got to do is listen to them. Remember verse 6 told us they swerve and, and they wander, even in their lives. You could tell they really don't understand God's Word. They, they were straying and wandering from growing in love. And Paul said this teach, and that's what his teaching aims for, but they, they were swerving and wandering from that. What Paul is dealing with here in verse 7 when referring to the law, and I'm going to explain that, is legalism, or a better word is moralism. That's what was being promoted in another sense by these false teachers. This legalism or moralism is a teaching that does not understand, listen to me, the necessity of God's grace in order that we can even obey the law. This legalism or moralism says, when asked the question, how can a man be right with God? The response is this, obey the law, do good, be good, and God will accept you. That's what they were teaching. And how many people do you hear on the TV that give that kind of message? Oh, I'm not here to judge no one. I'm just here to love everyone and tell them that God accepts them. How does He accept them? Not by being good. I want to point us to something to help us understand this, okay? Luke 18. <coughs> Luke 18 <coughs> helps us understand what's, being, what's taking place here. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. When I start talking about this, you, you'll be familiar. You'll, you'll, you'll begin to go, I, yeah, I've heard that. In Luke chapter 18... And in verse 9, Jesus tells this famous story of the Pharisee and the publican. Remember that story? The Pharisee was proud and boastful. And what did the publican do? Beat his chest. Man, I'm a rotten, filthy sinner. You know that. So he's explaining this. And Jesus, it says in verse 9, told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So the whole point of the parable was to undeceive, if that's a word, the Pharisees from believing they were righteous. And then he goes on to tell the story in verse 18 about a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler asked Jesus, he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember that? What can I do, good teacher, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, You know the commandments, the law, you know them, keep them. At this point in time, you ought to be going. But we can't do that. And then rich young ruler, does anybody know what he says? Oh, I've already done that. And that's all you need to know. To know that he hadn't. Right? If anything, he just broke the commandment not to tell a lie. The rich young ruler says, I've done that since I was a child. I've kept all the commandments. You see, Jesus' very point in saying this to him was to see whether he knew of his need of forgiveness or not. And he did not, right? Jesus had even tipped him off because the man had said to Jesus, what? Good teacher. 
And Jesus' words to him were what? Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and it is who? God. And then he asked the young man, remember, what he had, have you kept the commandments? And the young man says, yeah, I'm good. Where did Jesus get through telling him? There's nobody good but who? God. Yes, I'm good, Jesus. After Jesus had just said that, there's nobody good. It's a play on words. Jesus' point was to make it clear that the young man, excuse me, to make it clear to that young man, the law cannot make him good. Remember, I kept those, Jesus. I gotta be good. The law can hold him back from from sin. The law can show him his sin, but the law in and of itself cannot make people good. You ever been talking to somebody and asking about the gospel and say, what do you think it takes to get to heaven? What's the reply you hear commonly? Be good, work hard, take care of my family. I'm in, right? These false teachers in Ephesus were claiming... A teaching of the law which would show the people of God how they could be good. And Paul is saying they don't understand what the law is and they don't understand what it's for. And as a result, they are not building up the church. They're not building up the people in the gospel. And I think there's Paul's major point in verses 6 and 7. False teachers always fail to edify and build people up. The only true sound teaching of the gospel can edify the people of God. The gospel of forgiveness of sin through faith alone and Christ alone is the message of all true teaching. If that is left out, that's a good indicator to you this is a false teacher. In verses 8 through 10, we won't talk about all these. We see the true nature and the function of the law. Paul says, let me explain to you what the law is and how it works. Paul begins verse 8 by saying that the law is what? Good. And by now you ought to be going, no, wait a minute. Good. Just told good doesn't get you in. He keeps going. He says the law is good. Now we know that the law is good, but here's the problem. The law is good if one uses it what? Lawfully. So we should use the, the law, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments in sharing the gospel, if we use it the right way. In other words, if you use the law in the way God intended the law to be used, in accordance with its nature. Those who see the law by itself as the solution to the problem of our unrighteousness, those who think that the law itself, by obeying it, can make us right with God, they're deceived. Paul says the law is good, but they misunderstand the law. Verse 9. He says we know that the law is good, but in verse 9 he says we know that that the law is not what laid down for the just. It's not for the righteous person. We know that righteousness can only come through faith in Christ when we receive His righteousness. But the law is for verse 10, and what Paul does is he basically walks you through in a a general fashion the Ten Commandments. That's what he's doing here. He walks you through the Ten Commandments. The law is for the lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. That covers the first four commandments. That's what he's talking about there. Then notice how he picks up the fifth commandment. Those who strike their fathers or mothers. Then he gives you a a listing of sins that line up for the most part with commandments 6, 7, 8, 
9. Why does it deal with 10? I, I don't know. And just in case he left anything out, what does he say? Whatever else is contrary. There's an opposition to sound doctrine. That word sound has the idea of being healthy. This is going to be a major theme in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus. This idea of healthy, whole teaching. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, there's a certain kind of doctrine that brings health and that brings healing. And there's another kind of doctrine that brings sickness. There's one kind of doctrine that will make you well, and there's another kind of doctrine that will fill you with disease. Or I would say it will make you sicker than you already are if you're lost. And here's what I want to say. Is, is, I think is, is, is an application here. Paul is talking about the gospel, the word of God being what we build the church on, what we build our lives on. The gospel, God's word, if we don't have it, we have no gospel. And some of you have lost loved ones. You have lost friends and neighbors, classmates, and people you work with. And sometimes you may think that they're beyond saving. You got somebody in your life that you think that about sometimes? Go ahead and say yeah, because you do. You think they're they're so whatever that God would never save them. You need to take hope in God's word. God's word is powerful. The good news is that no matter how spiritually diseased a person may be, no matter how far gone in sin, there's healing in the gospel and in the teaching of God's Word. Nobody's beyond the reach of God's Word convicting them of their sin. Secondly, some of you struggle with spiritual growth. When we, when we believe the gospel and we get saved, we're delivered from sin's penalty. Right? We're set free. Jesus pays that penalty, but we all struggle with sin's power, right? Afterwards. Yes. The more sound, healthy, listen, biblical teaching you put yourself under, the better you are equipped to experience daily deliverance from sin's power. True biblical teaching leads to spiritual health. And how do we make sure that we stay in the area of sound, healthy doctrine that Paul tells us in verse 11? Let me point something out to you. Go back to um, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And then he... Remember what Paul does? There's a comma there, right? And then he explains these things. The comma tells us that this, this thought is going to pick back up again. And where does it pick back up? Verse 11. Let me read verse 8 again. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Sound teaching is always teaching that has the gospel in it. Paul says that the gospel reveals the glory of God. It reveals His love, His righteousness, His mercy, His grace, His wisdom, His power. Sound teaching is always in accord with the good news that displays God's glory in Christ Jesus. Any teaching that has no semblance of the gospel in it is false. I don't care how much they think they know about the Bible. If Jesus doesn't show up in their teaching that men are dead in their sin and need the the redemption of Christ, that's a false teaching. 
I don't care how many degrees they got behind their name. They are false teachers. Let me read you this quote from Danny Aiken, which is the president of Southeastern Seminary. I actually heard him say this one time. I've often said, give me ten minutes with any of you. Let me ask you some basic questions about what you believe about Jesus and His gospel. And I can pinpoint pretty close to 95% of the rest of your theology. What's he saying? Whatever you believe about Jesus, you'll believe that proves whatever else you believe about the Bible. Why? Because what you believe about Jesus and His gospel will determine what you believe about the Bible. It will determine what you believe about God. It will determine what you believe about man. It will determine what you believe about salvation. It will determine what you believe about the Holy Spirit, the church, and the end times. So, if Jesus isn't in there, pardon my English, it ain't the Bible. If Jesus gets left out, it ain't the Bible. It's false teaching. Paul is saying that the gospel itself is the measure of soundness in all teaching. If someone comes and says, obey the law and God will save you, do good and God will take you to heaven, all roads lead to God and eternal life, Paul says that person does not understand the gospel. And if someone tells you that, if you're spiritually mature enough, you need to correct them. If you're not, you need to run. Because what do they do? They lead people away. And here's some application. Pay close attention to what you read, who you read, and who you listen to. Everything on the shelf at Lifeway is not good for you. I'm a Southern Baptist, but I'll tell you, everything in Lifeway is not good for you. And I'll give you a hint. If it's on that first row when you walk in, go right past it. They have a section there called bargain books. You know why books are bargains? Because they ain't worth a flip to begin with. That's why they're a bargain. Nobody buys them. Don't buy them. They'll say, buy three and get one free. Just pay full price for a good book and and go on your way. Walk past that first aisle and keep going toward the back and you'll get there. Pay close attention. Everything on the shelf is not good. Everything on the TV and on the radio is not good for you. Now, if you're mature, you can figure out what's not good. Notice what Paul tells Timothy. With which I have been entrusted. Man, that word entrusted just jumps off the page. Entrust means to assign to someone a responsibility to do something. Where's Timothy at? In an ungodly, sinful, rebellious city with a church and there's false teachers in there. And Timothy's got the responsibility of maintaining the gospel. Whoa. Here's what I would say to you. You're going, he's the pastor. I get a pass. No. The gospel is entrusted to you, redeemed sinner. You've been assigned the responsibility of proclaiming to lost sinners the gospel. God does not save you so that you might live happily for yourself and go to heaven. He's left you here on earth to proclaim His message of reconciliation to others. That's the only reason you still exist. The gospel is the only reason, the only reason that we as a church exist. Can I say that again? The only reason we exist as a church, Red Bud, is for the gospel. That's why God's put us here. 
We must guard the gospel. We must guard the truth. We, we can't be teaching and preaching one thing to our children and then living contrary to that truth. Let me say that again. We can't say one thing to our children about what the Bible says and then live another way. That's false teaching, right? You're going to say anything. Yes, you are. You're not using words, but you're teaching. God gave us a mission to make disciples, a mission to tell others the good news that Jesus saves. And then we're to teach them from the Bible sound, healthy doctrine so they'll follow Jesus and so they'll do what? So they'll make disciples. All believers have a responsibility to be on the alert for false teaching. And here's what you look for. Four things and then we're done. Look for an understanding of the Scriptures. Are they teaching the Bible? And you go, well, I don't know. Then here's my response to you. You need to get in the Bible and know so that you'll know whether they're teaching the Bible or not. Second, examine their goals. Do they seek to glorify God or do they pursue themselves? And I will be ugly here, and I'm trying to be as nice as I can, but a lot of these people you see on TV, if you pay close attention, it's not about God, it's about who? Me. Them guys can strut sitting down. I mean, it's all about them. Just because they wear skinny jeans and a v-neck t-shirt and white high-top tennis shoes don't mean they're teaching the Bible. Number three, what are their motives? Are they humble and selfless or do they seek the preeminence in their life? And number four, examine the effect of their teaching. Do their followers clearly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ or do they promote self-righteousness. Do good and you'll go to heaven. Let's pray.